0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's best catering companies and now home food delivery companies in the COVID-19 crisis. The restrictions all around the nation in Australia and for our international listeners, that's very positive. They're happening all around Sydney too. They are allowing you to have more people over. They're allowing you to have your family back around. They're allowing you finally to socialize in this pandemic. You're seeing examples of it all over the world. And You know, one of those things means if you've been at home, locked away for like two months, you've forgotten how to cook for people. You've forgotten how to cook for a large scale of people, but Bella Catering haven't. So get onto their website, check out all their stuff, take the stress about catering for all of your friends and family and focus on the embraces if you're allowed. Focus on the social distancing, being in the same spaces with the people that you love. Don't focus on food. Bella Catering, have got that covered. bellacatering.com.au and now onto the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. The office of the state's attorney of Dade County, Florida, occupies the sixth floor of Metropolitan Dade County Justice Building, directly across from a narrow, palm-line lane in the county jail. Bernstein took up the elevator up, stepped in the reception room, and he asked for Dardis. A receptionist told him that Mr. Dardis had left his apologies, but had to go out in a case. She had no idea when he'd be back, Bernstein started reading magazines. An hour passed, uniformed policemen, shirt sleeved detectives with snub noses, 38s tucked into their holsters, defendants, prosecutors streamed through. Many stopped to chat with the receptionist whose name was Ruby. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a film critic for The Economist, for the LA Review of Books, for Guardian, and someone who, until just a thread on emails very recently, uh, I didn't know was actually in the trenches as a professional campaign staffer and lobbyist. And I've been excited to talk to him because we've got a minute here where bureaucracy and flexing and intentional mispronunciations of names is the currency that we're dealing in. So I feel like it's going to be a very fun conversation to have. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Noah to to the podcast. Noah, thank you so much for being a part of the show.
1: Blake, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: My friend... As a film critic, let's start there because this film is now more than 40 years old. It's made at the time of a crazy, completely dominating story in a way that only things like COVID-19 and maybe 9-11 I can possibly remember have had such an omnipresence in like you wake up and you know that the front page of every paper that you're going to read is that. And then similarly, when the dust settles on huge events. And obviously we're still in the middle of it with COVID-19 when the dust settles on huge events, you maybe, maybe the OJ trial, maybe the potential impeachment of <laughs> president Bill Clinton. Um, and an Australian equivalent would be a Port Arthur, a gun massacre. is probably one of the, the largest like omnipresent stories that happen in our country. And so you have these instances, the dust settles, film and TV comes, comes a knocking. Um, it feels so insane to me, and you would know watching so many films and reviewing so many films and deconstructing so many films, is like, it feels so insane to me still to this day that they make this movie at this time, they make a whole bunch of calculated choices for the audience of that time, and yet now in this project going through minute by minute, I'm like, the choices that they made to be less obvious, to be slightly more poetic... <laughs> just to, to like give less um are so enriching through revisitation because you're just like there's something so artful about all of the choices so i i, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what your experience of the film is and and how you receive it as a critic and and especially uh now at, at a time like this
1: yeah so when i think about a, a film that is made really quickly after a newsworthy event. I I typically think about like a movie of the week or a TV movie or something like that. It's just, it's it's latching on to a headline and it's dramatizing it to make a quick buck. And this is like, obviously the opposite of that. (laughs) Robert Redford who, you know, who optioned the story and shepherded this through the whole process and hired uh, Pakula and Goldman and everyone else. Like he had really earnest and, and high aims know in his head the only other film I can think of that even is close and I know you've talked about it on the cast on the podcast before is United 93 yeah and I think I think those films have somewhat similar goals which is that they are taking this really dark horrible situation that created almost an entire dark era for America and they're trying to pull some heroes out right like America needs heroes and in the Vietnam, Watergate era, people were so disillusioned there were not a lot of heroes left. And this film, to me, is trying to position William Bernstein and the field of journalism more broadly as American heroes. And I think it's notable because the way journalists have been depicted in film prior to this is not that heroic. Uh. Uh, To me, like the, the films I think of when I think of journalism are like Ace in the Hole and maybe Sweet Smell of Success. And if you want to go back further, it's Girl Friday and that sort of thing.
0: Sweet smell but of success. Not- sweet sweet <laughs> uh, when when we jump into a, a, a film that hasn't in reference on this show that I I've just had in my stomach, like please someone talk about this film. Sweet smell of success is like that's it. That's that's a that's a movie that's iconic in like the journalism cinema like lineage of movies. Cause it's, it's about ultimately a complete and utter dirt bag right at the center, a controlling egomaniac, uh, right at the center of it. And so, you, you know, you go from foreign correspondent where it's basically like Hitchcock doing, you know, Hitchcock, you know, throwing someone into, uh, Basically throwing someone into war without actually throwing them into war. Uh, and then you get something like Sweet not Success and journalism, the industry has changed. And it's like, no, we can create these personalities who have influence and and therefore have power and then have that same corruption uh, elements that we, we have fun with in businessmen and politicians and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, and in Sweet Smell's success, I and mean, he's an egomaniac, he's, he's really a sociopath, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has yes. so little humanity. <laughs> yes. And these characters, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, the, the film is very attentive to their humanity and yeah. the little places where they start to lose it a little bit and then gain it back. And I, we'll talk about that a little more, I'm sure, as we get further into this. But uh, it just goes to show you what a turnaround there was or, or that this film was trying to make in the way the public looked at journalists. They went from being sociopaths, like in Ace in the Hole and Sweet Smell of Success, to American heroes, in in less control.
0: God, and and if there was ever an era that needed journalists to be heroes, (laughs) it's just like, maybe that's what we're craving this time. You're so right, is... um, Can I say also,
1: though, that uh, we we needed them then, not just because we needed journalists, they were important, but because we just didn't have any other heroes. A lot of the country did, didn't even think of the military as heroes anymore. And I think it's so notable that, you know, the opening frames of the movie with the the uh, the, the, war, the June being typed out with the typewriter. I don't know if you've talked about this before, but apparently Pakula used the sound of a gun being fired on each of those letters being typed to make it sound even more forceful. And I think what a beautiful image and metaphor that is, that he's saying these are these are the weapons of change typewriter, you know, they're as powerful as guns. And I think that's a really cool way to begin. the
0: movie. Never talked about that before. Didn't know that detail. Gonna go and just dis- going, to go and find that in the research to get that. But that's a great, that's a great note. Uh, and it's, and it's the way that the show begins every time. So I should probably know, but it, a beautiful piece of sound editing to underscore that. You made a really great point, which we haven't gotten to talk about as much, but it's really pertinent to the scene that we're talking about. And it's actually pertinent to the history when you, when you're doing the novel, when you're reading the novel, is there are moments of these guys' humanity and the questioning of their morality that literally leads up to this scene. So in in the previous scene, uh, when Bernstein is sitting on a park bench with a contact from his from a phone company, just sitting out there with a with an iconic thermos um, and uh, <laughs> having, uh, having some tea, and they just sort of uh, and some lunch, and he's he's going, if you Carl, I can get you records. I have access to records. But if I get you these records, you would be crying about your civil liberties being um, uh, being broken if I was just to hand them out to an intelligence agency with just on a whim. There's no warrant. There's no investigation. It's just like, we need to do this. So you've got to be careful about what, What you're asking me, because ultimately I could probably get you that information. But at the end of the day, other people can also get that information. And such an amazing precursor because in the book, Woodward and Bernstein, as they're writing it out together, talk about that being a really tough series of sequence of thoughts. Like putting putting the pieces of that scenario together going, do I need the information? Do I not? Is there a way I can sort of just confirm what I want? And in the way, in a way, there's that there's a little asterisk that sort of happens in the story where they do make the decision to just confirm that what the New York Times not to ask for more information, but just confirm that what was posted in the New York Times, because actually the New York Times break the story, what the New York Times actually wrote is true. It's like, yes, it is. And so it's such a funny moment that in that that moral quandary, knowing a boundary and then going, well, I'm going to exhaustively go beyond what they did. I'm going to go to Miami. I'm going to find what cases have uncovered this information. I'm going to find this guy, Dardis, and I'm going to get the stuff that they couldn't get. That's the, it's like the propulsive thing that like shoots them into this next scene that you and I get to discuss. It's, but it's so funny. Like every time I go back to this and especially now I've been going back into this, I'm like those thoughts of, what we consider probably more contemporary uh, uh, espionage stuff, or the government sort of nineteen eighty four watching us, it's like it kind of was all ha- like in in a very proto analog way could happen, and so you can see with like oh Orwell writes his book and those sorts of things. It's like oh pe- no, people like. Could be manipulated. We knew that technology made people more visible, more accessible. And now it's just like it, it started to get more refined and refined as technology grows and as our footprint becomes sort of impossible to shake when you've got a phone or when you're running around with digital footprint all over the place.
1: Yeah, when you combine this film, you know, or the, the paranoia trilogy of Fakula yes. with the conversation, you've got basically all of our modern day anxieties about the government. <laughs> right there in the over in the course of like three years
0: yeah absolutely and the conversation another masterpiece and just for anyone on my last watch and i think i've seen the conversation maybe 30 times another tremendous movie and often mentioned on this show the ending of that movie has gene hackman's harry cole having torn apart his whole apartment and then just sort of wailing away on his saxophone as this only final little island of respite in this like craziness that he's built for himself, this like palace of like paranoia. And it's just all crazy. But if you go one back. One of the
1: greatest. Oh, go
0: ahead. One of the greatest endings of all time, of any movie. One of the greatest American yeah. movies of all time. Um, and just, again, the impossible Coppola quartet of movies made in the seventies. It's just like. There's maybe never a better run ever. If you just go back to the middle of the scene in the conversation where Harry's at a, uh, at a convention for SP, <laughs> like people who spy on people, um, there's a great little moment where someone is walking through that convention, holding a, a saxophone. And it's only when I saw it on the big screen that I nearly lost my mind because in that moment you go, well, at the end of the movie, if his whole apartment's bugged and they're bugging him, they've bugged his saxophone. <laughs> so at the end... What a
1: great great argument for <laughs> why you have to see movies on the big screen whenever you have the chance. Because I've seen that movie
0: six or seven times and I've never noticed that. Before. I never noticed it either. Sort of big screen when we could still go to movies. And uh, right. <laughs> and I I was like, oh my God, that's... That makes it so much more bleak. It was already bleak, but it makes it so much more. (laughs) So before we quickly dive into the minute, because I think it might just be good context, let's start with you were a professional campaign staffer and lobbyist before transitioning into your career now. How does that sort of interfacing in that political campaign mechanism, like how, how does... How how does that perception sort of come back from your eyes? How immediate is the perception of like what what politics is as we see it as you know passive consumers I would say, or even active consumers uh, in the public versus you're in the trenches like you are you are you are seeing how the sausage is made. Um, how how is that now on you? And does that affect the way that you interpret art because you kind of see how the sausage is made from that lens and then you come back into what you're doing and you, you're sort of essentially commentating on how the sausage is made while talking about how effectively it, it impacts you. So I feel like both of those things, are, they sort of complement one another.
1: Yeah, so when I first started transitioning from politics to film criticism, I wasn't really doing traditional film criticism at first. I was more looking at the underlying politics of film.
0: Yes. Sometimes looking at
1: overtly, overtly political movies like this, but then uh, otherwise kind of just analyzing what's what's underneath. You know what what is this message? What is this film reinforcing about our politics, or, or what is it subverting? And uh, that was very useful for me up until a point. I really I really did enjoy that. But th- the, the issue with that is that most commercial films. Are inherently conservative. I've always thought because they, yeah. they really reinforce the status quo. You know, a happy ending reinforces the status
0: quo. Status uh, quo, all the status quo. Yep, whatever it is. It's very
1: rare. It's very rare you find a big mainstream movie that is actually like really progressive to its core or radical in any way. And this one actually is kind of radical in, in some ways in in uh, the way it tries to kind of pull heroism out of out of a place that, that people didn't normally see it. But I will say, in looking at this movie in particular, um, what I think about politics, and what I think what we all think now is that corruption is systemic. Yes. You know? uh, at the time, at the time of Watergate, we thought of corruption as a, a deeply disturbed man in the Oval Office who, you know, had tentacles and everything, and it all came from him. And I think this movie actually isn't that because Nixon doesn't is not featured in it very much we're dealing with the tentacles more than you know the, the octopus yes. <laughs> I guess uh, so this movie shows corruption as systemic um, not the the work of just one bad apple and I think that is ahead of its time and I think that that is uh, much more akin to the way we view it today than the way most people actually viewed it back then
0: yeah I I I there is actually even a deep throat line, where he's like, it's not a bad, like it's not a bad apple. Sorry to paraphrase it because it's I haven't got the exact scripting in front of me, but it's, he he's like, it's not one bad apple. It's not a couple of bad apples that you guys are going to weed out because that's their argument. Like when it's systemically corrupt, the argument is, oh, it's just one bad apple. Like it was that person in, in a particular power of influence and etc. But uh, you know that that happens in a you know, corporate malfeasance, uh, corporate malfeasance sense. It happens in politics. It happens. as like there is a culture in an entity like that that it's like no it, it propagates like there's a, a the system is giving you incentives to do to continue to do questionable shit and the impulse is like if it incentivizes you to do it you will do it and it's like a really that's that's something that um That's something that I observe and, you know, especially because this show is such so much about journalism. It's like how you watch how things are covered. I've taken particular interest with when a CEO of a company or of, you know, whether it's a political leader or a CEO of a company or something like that, when they get attacked and then like try and get ousted. And then the just, it's so interesting watching the machinations of the story of like, Oh, here's the new CEO and the, the whole culture's changed. And you're like, wait, that company that has 25,000 people in it or 50,000 people just sacked one guy and that's going to change how the other 49,999 people act? No. Like, I mean, in, to, to a point, yes, but like how was how, how that system? What, what are the players that were uh, reinforcing that behavior the whole time all along the way? How long have they been there? Who is that guy? You know, the SACA CEO has been there for five years. Big deal. There's other people in the company that have been there for 40, Similarly with political campaigns. And, you know, you would see it more than anyone, like with stalwart senators who've been there in certain districts for X amount of years that just seem to like the pages of history keep turning and they're still a character <laughs> in this play that just keeps happening over and over. And you're like, this, there, there might be something a bit weird about this.
1: Well, it goes back to the cult of personality that we spoke to earlier. I think we have a savior complex. We like the idea that uh, somebody can just come in and fix everything and we don't have to actually change anything. Somebody else will do it for us. And it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, one of the people I worked for in politics was John Edwards, who ran for president in 2008 and was a very serious player. He was one of the remaining three Democratic candidates, along with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And right before the, the Iowa caucus, the story came out about him having had an extramarital affair. And it was a terrible fall for him and for his family and for all of us who believed in him. I mean, I was I was a real believer in him and I probably held him on too high of a pedestal. And you know, if I had if I had grown up in the Watergate era, I probably would <laughs> not have that kind of idealism. But I was a young person who didn't know my history. Hadn't been through it, so I was still holding people up. But I think once you go through something like that, as the whole country really went through in, uh, in the Watergate era, it's very hard to to go back. Despite the fact that we we do have this kind of innate need to like hold our political figures up to that level, a lot of people are still comfortable doing it, I guess. But but I'm not. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love that. A lot of people are, but I'm not. That's that is a really, that's a really good look. Let's um. Let's dive into this minute. It's a great little minute. A yeah. uh, little bit of h- historical context for folks. This visit to Darius's office actually 100% happened because I think that just wanted there was a, there's a slight misnomer in the overarching uh you know authenticity if you like of of the adaption of this and what is hist- what is what is taken to be historically accurate in everything that the way that this film conducts itself, this is the scene that has an asterisk next to it. And one of the reasons that it does is that it is it survives almost in its entirety from previous draft of the script uh, that, happened, uh, that was done by Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein in amongst the time that it was still in development. There was a little bit of, um, uh, again, there's a, a little bit of history uh, behind the scenes here of, uh, Goldman's script being the sort of sa- the sacred text and it comes in and it does mutate. They're not quite sure how they're going to do it because P- Pakula and Redford have such very specific ideas of how the movie needs to flow and et cetera. So when they interface together, what ultimately is there is like 85 to 90% of Goldman's original, excuse me, Goldman's original script, but it kind of gets tweaked slowly. And this is one of the scenes that gets injected. So a lot of people go, oh, this is the most historically inaccurate scene. No, it's not. It this scene happens, Bernstein goes and visits Dardis, Bernstein has this conversation with Dardis, Bernstein gets the information from Dardis and makes the phone call that he ultimately makes to Woodward back in Washington. But this secretary did not necessarily have as big a role in in the scene keeping him away, but it, they're making a calculated, dramatic choice. And I think the, I think the one thing that is a, probably a perfect time to talk about it now, like we're we're at the 44th minute of of this 1976 movie there is every film documentary or narrative is is romanticizing something like it is tell it is telling a story it is being manipulated in a way and so you know for all of this movie's calculated execution this is just like a dramatic flurry of like how to get to this guy because he's being impenetrable and even having to wait is is historically accurate? Bernstein did go down to see this guy, and did get asked to like did get asked down to go and see him, and then did get made to wait for him, and then had to have that sort of blustery exchange of like, if you don't give me what I need, my I can't I am gonna I'm, my editors are waiting on your story, I need it, so I just want to be really clear that that happened because I think in this scene particularly there's a lot of like mixed feelings about it's Nora Efron's written scene and Bernstein written scene you can look at it that way but just the the historical facts are that he did go there the artist did make him wait he did get a bit blustery make it happen get the story get it to Woodward and then they went down the the next path that we're going to see unfold on the screen
1: but this little moment which we'll talk about where he tricks the secretary that that is invented right as far as we know
0: yes that's invented the secretary the secret the secretary as a uh, this, the the secretary as a, a inhibitor, as like as as like a micro foe in this huge movie, <laughs> this little this little totem of bureaucracy, and she's so perfect, like this little totem of bureaucracy that's like holding him from doing it. Not actually factually accurate from what we from what we've come to learn about this this scene, but nonetheless, this is an exchange to sort of basically give Bernstein more time on screen and Hoffman more time as Bernstein to see what this character, what, what he's made of. Cause up until this point, the balance of both of the characters, and especially when you go through, you know, four or five minutes with Woodward one-on-one with Deep Throat and we're seeing how those characterizations unfold and seeing Woodward in the courthouse and seeing those things, you haven't got as much of what Carl does. And like later in the bookkeeper scene now, just in the park, um, other phenomenal scenes that he really comes to the fore like you really see what he's what he's made of and and i think that this is just sort of like going all right well let's just make sure we're telling the story of these two guys and how they go about what they do um so let's get to it this is the 44th minute so the fortunate thing for anyone who's listened to a one heat minute production mohicans and our signature show one heat minute but, um, both had films that had different versions you do not have to worry if you're watching this on DVD or on Blu-ray or on Video On Demand if you're at the 43 minute mark on your dial 43.00 that is the beginning of our minute you're going to be looking right into uh, the. you're going to be looking right into the face of Dustin Hoffman scanning at the secretary so Noah and I are going to watch it together right now and then we're going to come back and talk about it coffee black coffee black
1: And I'm still here.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad. you could
1: just get me in the scene for five minutes, I'd appreciate it. I, I know you're... It I have to get back. We're going to try.
0: Oh, hi. He's expecting you.
1: I do have a couple things to do. I'll be at the Sheridan, if you want to reach me, if he has any space tomorrow, i appreciate it. Numbers.
0: Thank you for your patience. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Bernstein. Tomorrow should be better.
1: I guess so. Mr. Dardis' office. Hi, uh, please tell Mr. Dardis that Mr. Bernstein has just left. He'll be available all day tomorrow. I think we can probably squeeze him in around 4.30. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm still here, Noah. I'm still here. We're, Great. We are still here. <laughs> Now you as a film critic and also as a campaign staffer waiting for people and waiting for interviews and waiting and, and knowing that you have to file something at a certain time. It's, it's like a universal journalistic frustration of like, oh my God, I need to file this. And especially for these guys at the beginning of this journey, who haven't quite clicked into what their rhythm is and haven't quite found the way that they compliment one another, the pressure to continue to keep filing. So they'll be allowed to keep doing this story must be unimaginable. And Dustin Hoffman's frustration and in in flat out inability as Bernstein to hide that is just delectable. I could watch him in this scene all day. It's so fun. It is a fun 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 well, moment in this movie.
1: It's a, it's a it's a mood he creates a lot which is in in this movie which is Bernstein is like jumping out of his skin, you know. <laughs> yes. He's he's he just is he can't believe he's still sitting in that chair <laughs> and it's a great it's a great minute because the minute starts with the security guards leaving, right? Yes. So he's been sitting there all day and he knows this is my chance. Yes. And then what happens after that is she lets someone else in and in the, that looks like it looks like a hip
0: immediately. That's what's so funny. It's right. like, oh yes, we'll try we'll try so hard to squeeze you in. Oh, he's too waiting for you. And she just lets this random person through. And you can just see in his face, like, Are you Are you kidding me? Like are you f-? And he looks
1: the guy who she lets in, he looks like he's like a hippie. He's yeah. got like flowers on <laughs> and he's got a beard. And Dustin Hoffman birthday has gotta be sitting there thinking she lets this hippie in and I'm still sit in here this hippie just gets to walk in oh. it's just so perfectly constructed
0: it's it's it, for you know for, for some of the stuff we said in the preamble around the historical accuracy I love I love mini foes in movies I love I, I love the bu- bureaucratic frustrations that's maybe just like a weird perverse thing that I have because in different jobs that I've had it's like there is nothing more frustrating then the secretary who won't let you to talk to this person or the business manager who won't let you talk to this person or the publicist who won't let you talk. When you're like, I've already, you know, you may meet the person that you want to speak to and you're like, I've already talked to them. They're ready for this conversation to happen. <laughs> What's so those micro confrontations where you have to just be, just smile and cough it, it's, I love it. And and it, yeah, it's, it is Dustin Hoffman's Bernstein, in this movie, is so great at just he, he hums on like this great frequency all the time in a lot of a lot of this part of his career where like jumping out of his skin is like a big part of it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why he's a perfect counterpoint to Redford, right? Because Redford yes. is more placid; he has a steelier exterior, mm. and and Hoffman is quite quite the opposite. Uh, but but two things, what you just said made me think of uh, the first is that I think. Although obviously we're very frustrated on Bernstein's behalf in this scene, the characterization of the secretary is really, really sharp and rich. And she's not just a villain. Like, no. you hear after he, you hear in the next minute that she is planning on getting him in the next day, but she takes her job really seriously. She has a system. He circumvented the system, and she's not going to push someone else out of the way so he can get in there. And I actually think. Between the writing and, and the the portrayal by the actress, it's she brings a lot of sympathy to a character that we would otherwise not be sympathetic to.
0: A hundred percent, because like she cares, she cares so deeply about it. And it's like for us, it's like the world, the world is going to come to an end if these guys don't break this story. And <laughs> yeah. for her, the world is going to come to an end if someone circumvents <laughs> yeah. her system. And it's just a beautiful yeah. like. Unstoppable force, immovable object. Yeah. It's really fun, and the only way that he's going to do it is he's going to have to play a little bit. You know, play play a little bit of a you know cheekily get her out of the office so he can sneak through. It's it's just a yeah. I I, I love I love that. I love all of the stuff that's happening. And and like you said, everything that she's doing is so spot on. Like if you've been to any you know, business manager, personal assistant, publicist, like, you know, I- even, if you're, if you, even if you've been to a doctor's waiting office, and hopefully right now as we're talking, you haven't, but like there is, there are three of these identical women at the office I take my kids, like at our local doctor's office, and they're all this lady. And every time I walk in there and I've got an appointment, they always make me feel like I've done something wrong, um, even though I have technically done you know, I've, I've booked my appointment. Like They always make you feel like you've done something terrible. And you're like, yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Oh, so you've got your booking. yet, Mr. Howard. Yep, thank you so much. Yep, you go sit over there. And I'm like, man, every time, like every time I feel bad when I walk into this office. But like, obviously, they don't mean to, but they've just, you know, they've got to make sure that everything is working and, and the system works and all that sort of stuff.
1: And their authority is not, it's beyond question. No matter who you are, you walk into the doctor's office, you're a master of the universe you still are beholden to what the person at the front desk tells you. You've got to do what they say. Yes. And I think it's, it's you know, whether Bernstein or Efron wrote this, we don't know, but it definitely is a bit aggrandizing of Bernstein that he, because in the rest of the movie, he's <laughs> yeah. coercing, he's massaging, but he runs into this brick wall here and yet he still finds a way to get in. And it is a movie It's a movie trick. I don't know if this was the first movie that used this technique, but we've seen it in many movies since where somebody calls from outside, pretends to be someone else, you know, and to to get someone away from their desk. And I think it definitely makes you see him as somebody who is very, very clever in the way that we we wish we could all be clever.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've seen him be, we've seen him be, and and this is the great thing about Redford is steady. I think you said, you know, he's got that he's steadfast in his approach and he's a great listener. He kind of extracts words out of people that they don't want to say. So there's some, you know, there's. I don't know if you've got friends like this, but I've got friends like this who've just, you know, have got these faces where they just some somehow people just talk to them, you know. And you go, how did that happen to you on the train? Like they come home and they're like, this person <laughs> told me this about my. Life. You're like how did that's never happened to me. And they're like, look at you, like, you you know, you probably <laughs> got your head in a book or a podcast or something. Um, but he's got that technique. Whereas what's great about Hoffman as Bernstein here is, I think you, you nailed it. And it's important for this scene is the diagnosis of how can I get in with this person? And that is what his true strength is and what Hoffman's performance, like where it shines. You know, it could be flirtatiousness on top of the Q Hotel, which is great. And, and that's that with a bookkeeper, it's like speaking at a almost like half speed and barely even talking and stretching an interaction out to the nth degree. But here, and I just want to credit the actress, Polly Holiday is the, is the, is the secretary looking at her going, I'm still here. And then her going, I'm so glad, like, the, 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 just the, she, she's like Teflon. Like she's nothing's going to stick. Like there's nothing, no bit of charm, no bit of not, not Yeah, Well, I'm sorry, you, Mr. Bernstein, you know, again, the flex of mispronouncing his name, even when he tries to correct her on multiple occasions. No, you, you circumvented the system. I need you to fall back in line. Him then going, I can't, like, I can't get past this person. I've tried the charm. I've tried the authority of the newspaper, I've tried this. Right now I'm nothing. I'm like you said, there's you know, you are it's an egalitarian environment. <laughs> right now, as soon as you walk into that office, everyone experiences the same thing from this secretary. As long as you adhere to our system, you're you're fine. If you don't, you're out.
1: Okay. And so I want to talk about the charm a little bit because one of the first things I thought about when I was watching this minute was was comparing it to the scene at the rooftop bar that you mentioned earlier. Yes. Because so much of this movie. Is Woodward and Bernstein trying to coerce women into doing what they want? Yes. I mean, it is very it is very sexual in a way if you think about it. Yes. They, this is a macho movie, right? And these are two macho guys who are trying to do anything they can to get these women to you know open up to them. And in the first scene, they he's, he he just uses his Bernstein charm. He's got a reputation around town. And this girl likes the attention, and he easily gets what he wants. But then he runs into this secretary who's a little older, a little more savvy. She's run <laughs> into a few burn scenes in her life oh, before, hasn't she? And it, and it doesn't work. And he he even uses his little power move, which is he puts his leg up on the chair. Yes, which he sits this way. He sits this way a few different times in the movie, and it's very sexually suggestive. And it's a power move to just sit there with your legs spread wide open. And the second he does it. She's like, nope, and he has to put his foot right down. She is not having it. Oh. And the sexual dynamics of what's going on there are just so rich, and honestly, the sexual dynamics throughout the whole movie, like there, I could do a whole podcast just on that <laughs> That thread of like, is he going to be aggressive with women? Is he going to be kind to women? Bernstein has like, he learns from Woodward at one point. I think it's during the scene.
0: It's with Sally with, um, I can read your mind. It's the Sally Aiken scene. Yeah. Where where Bernstein right. is like, you know, even Sally says, and and to paraphrase, she's like, I don't, I don't have the same like taste for blood that you guys do, and and gotcha. and like making her, pushing her, to, to to manipulate a relationship, pushing her to do something that she doesn't want to do, um, and there's also another great Lindsay Krauss the great Lindsay Krauss yes. plays Kay Eddie, K. Eddie. She and yep. she's, she's wonderful. And there's another scene with Kay Eddie. It's like, Oh, your ex fiance. And she's like, well, that means I have to see this person. And so, you know, the, the women, the women in this, the women who often go so ignored, um, in many movies in the seventies, um, here, it, they are the fonts of information. Like they're the people who've been ignored and just been doing, all of these menial tasks for all of these, you know, all of the tentacles, as you put it, in this entire sort of corrupt systemic, you know, rot that's happening. And they're the witnesses. They're bearing witness. So, like, it's funny watching them. And it's so funny also. It's, it's such a young man's thing of, like, you think that your charm is going to, you know, you're so used to interacting with people that are the same age and you have this fun, flirtatious energy. And then you strike someone who's way more experienced and like, no. We're not going to play that. we're going right. to play this silly game <laughs> play this silly and it happens
1: it, it happens a few times over the course of the movie there's like a couple of women who stonewall them mm. at, at the door of their house meredith baxter tries to basically stonewall them yes. um, before uh sloan the, her husband lets them in but those two scenes that you cited with with k eddie and sally aiken those are fascinating scenes to me because you know, there's a, there's a way to look at this, which is saying these two women reporters who are crucial to the story, Yes, the information that they get is from sleeping with people. Yeah. You know, and we, we talk so much in, in film criticism, or at least on film Twitter, about <laughs> the trope of female reporters sleeping with, with their sources. And this movie utilizes that, although I think it's much more critical uh, about the men who are using her Oh, because yeah. in, the scene with, in the scene with Kay, for example, Bernstein is like, he's really aggressive towards her. He's like, well, 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 why can't you go meet with him? You already broke up with him. What's the problem? Go sleep with him. Do what you have to do. And Woodward is saying, you know what? Don't. He's, he reads her eyes and he's like, we've gone too far. Let's let's not. And of course, it's the combination of those two approaches that makes her do what they want her to do. And in a, in, in a sense... These guys are like the perfect wingmen for each other, right? <laughs> I mean, they—they they, are, they, they are both using different approaches, but it works.
0: It's—it's not—it's not the one approach that can work. It's somewhere in the corridor between the polarity of these two guys. Because in that scene, you're so right. Is they are asking questions, and that's where Woodward in that moment and Redford's got such a great face for perceptiveness where he's looking at her, and he before he even articulates it, there's like 10 seconds of him going, we've crossed a line. And he kind yep. of watches, because they're so used to, at that point, they're sort of double team. He's sort of watching Bernstein do what he's doing. And he's like, no, we've gone too far. We're not, I'm not going to do like." And, oh.
1: then, and then she, you can tell, really appreciates that.
0: Yes. And then she
1: looks back to Bernstein and she's thinking, oh, but look how much this means to him. Yes. So it really is the combination of the two of them that makes it work. And then in the Sally Aiken scene, which is much later, their roles are almost reversed because Bernstein has learned that a softer approach works better with women. And Woodward is the one who says kind of harshly, um, did, you, did you think he told you that just to get you to go to bed with him? Yes. And that sounds more like something we would have expected Bernstein to say earlier in the movie. But Woodward has sort of now learned to go for the jugular and Bernstein is holding back. And that's a, there's a fascinating arc for each of them And that they're sort of learning from each other how to be a better journalist and maybe how to better talk to them
0: and i don't think that the burn scene at the beginning of the movie can do the bookkeeper scene with jane alexander which is arguably like the centerpiece one of the centerpiece scenes of the whole movie like people talk there's a lot of flash on things like deep throat and those sorts of things and really absolutely anything with the wonderful jason robards as ben bradley but i think that that bookkeeper scene just structurally technically um the performances and then like the coda like watching hoffman come back and pull notes and matchbooks and toilet paper out of his pockets it's just and you know that the that whole exchange it's just one of the scenes of the movie and i i love i love that when you get when he gets to that you're so used to this go for the jugular Bernstein and so that's like we're sort of seeing these guys flex that thing that that relationship out and and I think what's what's interesting as well is in both of those ones both of those examples um, Sally Aitken is the Sally Aitken scene that we were talking about is is an inter- is slightly more interesting than the um, the Lindsey Kraus scene um, uh, is because Sally Uh, play by Penny Fuller has already slept with him. She's like, I slept with like, you know, this happened. We did sleep together. This was ages ago. And, and so it's more, it's, it even becomes an interesting, and I look, I'd listen to the podcast if you're going to do it, or at least read the articles if you're going to write it. But uh, I think it is, it is really interesting to see. It's almost like Woodward won't go for the jugular for you to do something Mm -hmm. That is going to question your morality or hurt you. But if, if the event has taken place, he will be blunt and ruthless in his cross examination of what your motivations were during that moment. So like in the Sally Aitken scene, he's like, I want you to tell me whether he was just blowing it up because he was trying to get you in bed. And, and so, you know women being gatekeepers and literally the bookkeeper being a gatekeeper for like this font of information, it happens. And, and, and then the Lindsey Krause scene, that's where Burns scene is a little bit more has shows a little bit more bluster in an experience. Cause he's like, I'm actually going to make you do something you don't want to do and having an interaction with this person, maybe see them again. And whatever the consequences of you seeing them again, it is what it is to me. Cause all I want is a list. And so, yeah, it's a really, it's a really fascinating one to think about how those interactions happen, but it's that's the, that's the whole dynamic of this movie. Is so wonderful.
1: It's a great point, and I think also, you know, in the scene with uh, with Sally Aiken, the stakes are higher for them. Right? Oh, yeah. like They're like so close to the end of the story, their credibility has been questioned, so Woodward is a little more hardened at that point, and is a little less concerned with people's feelings, because he knows his profession and his livelihood is on the line. Um, but the scene with the bookkeeper, uh, you know, she was, of course, nominated for an Oscar for yes. basically those two scenes that they Alexander, had together. Yeah. So I, yeah, Jane Alexander, so I think, you know, you're it is clearly a really important scene. And I think you're totally right that Bernstein would not have been so kind to her uh, if that scene had happened earlier, because he he senses right away that she's really damaged, you know? And I think you see it as, as that scene goes on, when she says, who is it? She says, if you could put Mitchell away, that would be fantastic. And she's like almost crying when she says it. And he senses like, this is somebody who's traumatized. And so he uses a softer approach with her. And I think there's a, when I think about the way they approach women, the whole movie, I don't know if they actually care about these women at all, (laughs) or if the whole thing is just what approach is best for this situation to get what we want. And I think it's a testament to how brilliant the writing is, how brilliant the performances are, and after having seen it this many times, I still can't tell you how much of it is calculation and how much of it is a, a real, genuine human reaction.
0: The scene that you just... The thing that just struck me is it's, it's like, it might be a devil's advocate answer, but it's like, I think that's what's so rich about this movie is that it is always both of those things. It's like, it's always both because one of the scenes that I just, is just unforgettable. And I think about it all the time. And I think about it basically every time I knock on a friend's door or I call a friend to like ask a question or whatever is that great Hugh Sloan scene where they see Sloan and his wife's given birth and they go in and they grill him about questions and he goes, oh, and now your wife had the baby. And it's like they've just gone and grilled him, and then there's this beautiful human moment where they're like, you had a bag, oh so great. Oh, that's awesome. And they have these beautiful, the rich warmth, and you're like, I these guys are these guys have a humanity that is really um it's really endearing. And it is a real and it's and I think that this whole story is about that humanity and and butting up against that humanity, and then having to call it into question. And it's it's and it's even in that bookkeeper scene. Like there's there's sort of an, a forgotten character at the beginning, but it's it's exactly to your point about the charm of Hoffman. Hoffman charms the sister to let him into the house. <laughs> He's like, "Can I have a cigarette?" He charms the sister, and then when he meets the bookkeeper, Jane Alexander's character, it's he see he immediately senses the trauma and then completely changes his attitude and changes his posture and changes his approach. But it's like the same sort of, Oh, you could just grab a cigarette. That's the same. That's all the same energy we've become accustomed to with Bernstein in the whole movie. And it's that, but, but I, you're not wrong. There is a really interesting thing that all journalists have to contend with is like, what is the morality situation? And is how, how valuable is the information that this source can give me? And that's why yeah, ulti- yeah. Ulti- ultimately you know, the, the apartments that we see these guys in, um, besides Carl's sort of opulent, really beautiful, you know, adorned, it's got record playing. It's like cabinets. It's kind of beautiful. The mess of Woodward's like obsessive apartment, like that he just lives in like mounds of paper and, you know, crumpled, crumpled corduroy. Like it's, it's, these guys have got that sacrifice. And um, well, despite the fact that
1: Robert Redford is Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman is Dustin Hoffman, you do get the sense that Carl probably entertains more women <laughs> than yeah. Woodward does. That might have something to do with
0: it. Ab- absolutely. Yes. That <coughs> That is a point that ha- we haven't approached, but it will definitely influence when we, see, we get to that minute. But There's one more moment where we talk about, because I think this whole minute has really talked about kind of the theme of our minute ultimately has become about like journalistic approach and how and, and what you need to do. And there's a great I, – I also love watching how these guys learn from each other but also how they learn from their editors. So when whether it's um, Harry Rosenfeld or, or Howard Simon, so it's Jack Warden and Martin Balsam. But there's the great Bradley scene where after Sally Aitken tells them about the Canuck letter that, that um, Ben Bradley is contacted – by the guy who pens the Canuck letter, whose name escapes me just for this moment. And he's like, I don't, I don't care where you told Sally. Like, I don't care. It's just the, 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 the it's like a line that like robots like makes a meal out of. And it's just exquisite. He's just like, yeah,
1: he, said, he says, uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't care what you said in her apartment. I just, yeah, where I you said <laughs> it. I want to know what you said. I, yeah, I want
0: to know. I, I want to know. I don't care if, where he's where it? I want to know what you said. And it's just, like that, that's, that's the exact, like if you talk about those guys having a polarity, like the experience of Bradley and the confidence is like, he seems to just like walk the center line. And these editors all seem to walk a center line between like aggression, like that more aggressive behavior or that more, um, or that more aggressive behavior or, uh, the, the sort of like empathetic spongy, I'm going to sponge the information out of you. And, and, the, and it, it, Right in the center there is this charm of Bradley, like you can just sail. Oh, yeah, I
1: love, I love, I love, the, I love his portrayal because it reminds me of like a conductor playing a symphony. You yes, know? like he's not the one playing the instruments, but he gives them uh, a little goose when they need it, and he'll calm them down when they need it at other times. And watching him in that scene where they're very wound up, and he has this, he talks to the same person that they just talked to but he gets something totally different out of them because he, he has a different demeanor. It's really, really beautiful to watch him sort of modulate. In that
0: way. Yeah. Look, this has been really fun. This has been a really fun conversation. Noah. Can I ask you now out of politics, uh, political lobbying and professional campaigning and now into film criticism and you've re- written those sort of comparative essays, you know, I, I don't do it as much, but I feel like it's like appropriate with yourself. Like what other, what other thing, what other journalistic movies and, and, and have, and and have the complex politics that we're starting to talk about, whether it's sexual politics or the actual politics, more radically progressive politics. What other, what other films seem to come close to presidents in your mind as something that kind of endures, even if it's from that time, like what are those, what are those seminal examples that you think of when you're going, okay, if I'm going to recommend a, I'm going to recommend some films alongside presidents. What are those things that you're thinking about in your head?
1: I'm going to give you two surprising answers. Uh, I thought a lot about what political films actually do the best job of representing what politics is actually like. And the two answers that I've come up with, well, the first one is Charlie Wilson's War. Great movie. And underrated. I think it's a great movie. And I think the scene, it's a long scene where Charlie Wilson is in his office and he's juggling Uh, news he has received uh, of an inquiry into his cocaine use in las vegas (laughs) with talking to phil seymour hoffman's character from the cia about uh you know starting to, to think about how to how to fight the russians in uh in afghanistan the way he juggles those it makes them look like it makes it look like one job which most movies look at corruption political corruption as something separate from the work that they do yes and that movie really shows that that it's it's actually one thing and to the people who are doing it it's it's not that strange to have to deal with both of those things in the, the space of 5 minutes. Um, the other one is the Eddie Murphy comedy The Distinguished Gentleman which it, <laughs> oh my
0: god I know it's
1: not one of his it's not one of his most highly regarded I know films it. and I don't think
0: I know it it's not I, one haven't, of his, I haven't seen it in so long that's so funny.
1: I think it's a really good movie. You know, he plays a con man who gets a, a congressional seat because he has the same name as the congressman who held that seat for 40 years and died just before the election. And he uses that the stupidity of the populace who will just vote for, for whoever's on the ballot that they're used to voting for. He uses that uh, to get a congressional seat. He sees it as a big con, which is a delightful way to look at Congress. I really <laughs> appreciate that. But when he gets there and tries to actually start doing some good, which is kind of the hokey part of the movie, I think the movie does a really good job of explaining why change doesn't happen in Washington. There's a prominent lobbyist character. There's a prominent fundraising character. There's the Senate majority leader who are all sort of against him making change. And for all of its silliness, I think I think there's a lot of truth there about the obstacles to progress in Washington. So those would be my two.
0: That, now, if, if there is ever a, a Zoom watch party, if there's ever a Zoom watch party, <laughs> party to be happening in quarantine. I mean, just chronologically, going from all the President's men to the Distinguished Gentleman (laughs) into Charlie Wilson's war, that might be the hell of a fun like trio <laughs> a hell of a fun trio um, movie marathon to, it, to might, do.
1: it might be just you just you and me but I'll
0: do it <laughs> sounds like a blast look <laughs> Noah tell thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes my friend it's been really fun to talk to you super insightful and uh, you know you've been behind enemy lines so to speak so it's really fascinating and I think it's been a really rich combo so I just want to say a huge thank you and thanks for your time and, uh, and uh, it's been a blast I had a great time thanks Blake a huge thank you to Mr. Noah Dutell for being a part of the show. That was a great combo. You can find Noah at at Noah, N-O-A-H-G-I-T-T-E-L-L on Twitter and follow him into all the publications that he writes for. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. Um, you'll just need to know that now, every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, for the next coming months, you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of All the President's Minutes in your calendar in your schedule of listening we have a stack of other things happening on one heat minute productions as well every friday australian time a brand new show our seventh season on one heat minute productions is miami nice co-hosted by katie walsh where we go through michael man's misunderstood masterpiece miami vice one topic one morsel at a time we go all over it it is both a listen along and a watch along podcast um, where we will occasionally drink along while we're talking about it um, so we'd love you to check that out and also on saturday's australian time but friday's us time we still have our amazing increment vice dropping every single week with host travis woods and an array of amazing and talented guests so check that out get it in your ears if you want to support the show patreon forward slash Blake Howard that's where all of our One Heat Minute production support can be but right now in this crazy time of COVID we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalogue things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole One Heat Minute series. We have Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcasts, a 12-episode limited series going through the 2001 satire the music industry josie and the pussycats um an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film a stack of great episodes hosted by maria lewis um and produced by myself so check that one out as well but this has been another episode of one eight minute productions thank you so much for listening again and if you're still listening what the hell are you doing go listen to the next episode